Sometimes we don't like to be pointed out how to be better disciples of Jesus and how to miss out on being disciples of Jesus. And before we even get started, I want to start off in Luke, uh, in what we've looked at so far in chapter 9. So in Luke chapter 9, Jeff's been going through, and he's done, we've seen lots of different things. We started off with the sending out of the 12, Peter's confession, the feeding of the 5,000, the transfiguration, Jesus uh, up there with Moses and Elijah. And then we have the boy being healed with the evil spirit. We have Jesus setting his eyes and his journey on Jerusalem. So the climax of this book, we've already passed. He's on a different path. Up until that point, everything was always about letting people know who Jesus was. Now Jesus has a mission for the rest of Luke's book. So then two other things happened right before our passage. And one of them was, who is the greatest? And that was the apostles fighting about it. And then the very other thing about these apostles that are fighting over who's the greatest. Let's throw fire on Samaria and burn them to death. And it's like, yikes, okay. So then following that, we get our three potential disciples that you heard Sophie read. So before we get any further, I want us to read it one more time. Because it's a passage that it's a bit of a struggle because it's where we go. How does it impact us? And I want us to listen to it one more time. So as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Sounds good. Jesus replied, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another, I will follow you, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the service in the kingdom of God. So now you guys need to know this is the cost of discipleship. And I'm like, okay, yeah, that's great. Okay, Jeff, thanks for giving me this passage because it's, I don't plow. I, I mean, I can go back and say goodbye to my parents. I can bury my father. I can not worry about not having a house, but how does that impact me? Not losing. Okay, I get the podium mic. All right, so what I wanna do first, before we do anything, there's some historical context to the book of Luke. And that is in 1 Kings 18, through chapter two, 2nd uh, Kings 2. And it's interesting because this passage, as well as everything that's been happening in chapter 9, really apply back to that. So it's almost as if they are one and the same or similar things the writers are putting, or either writers or Jesus did. It says, uh, one of the things that you can see up there, it says, Elijah end is nearing. So just like Jesus' end is nearing in, in Luke chapter 9, Elijah is facing towards his end as he's getting to the end to this point. So he's looking for somebody to follow him. Another thing, Samaria. There the Samaritans, they had fire called down on the, the 
the, the altar that was out there. Remember the, there was the Baal prophets and Elijah by himself and that fire comes down from heaven. Very, very similar. Selecting and sending out workers. So right after he does this, God says, hey, get a bunch of people, go kill all of them. So, I mean, it's a little bit different. Jesus is 12, but they're doing the same job, going out and doing the work of God. They're getting sent. The Lord appearing to Elijah at Mount Carmel, the, head, the mountain of transfiguration. Elijah's threefold commission that happens at the end of the second Kings two. And then if we look straight at chapter 19, it goes right in to today's message in this little section. So the first thing is, is Elisha is called by Elijah. Then we have it saying, so like these three people, it talks about Elisha plowing a field. So as soon as Elijah comes up to him and says, hey, Elisha, uh, he throws his coat on him or something, I think, and then he knows he has to leave. He's like, well, can't I go say goodbye to my family? It's like, oh my goodness, this is almost the exact same thing that's going on. And Elijah says, yes. Which is interesting because it's the opposite of what Jesus says here. The next thing that happens is that Elisha, he goes back to his family, he brings his plow, because he was plowing, he burns it. And on this fire, he takes those oxen and he kills them. And he gives out the food to everybody around feeding of the 5,000. So, I mean, chapter 9 and this section in 1 Kings are like, they're almost every little uh, illustration that happens in there happens here again. But Jesus has different um, ways of looking at it. But I just want to let you know that hey, if you want to go read something very interesting, that 1 Kings section to the, the beginning of 2 Kings really applies to this passage. And you'll see lots of other things besides the ones I pointed out. But when we look at this Luke passage and look at our lives and try to think about how it is to be um, followers of Jesus, or as the NIV puts it, it says the cost of following Jesus. And we think about how it is, and a lot of times it's different for us because we don't fall into these three scenarios a lot of times. Sometimes we do, but it's rare. And it, it sort of sounds interesting for me to say, okay, somebody comes and asks me, how, do I, how should I be a disciple of Jesus? And I say, well, go read um, Luke 9, 57 through 62. They'll come back and they'll be like, I really don't have a connection to that. But you do have a connection to it. Because what's really going on here in their lives is not just the normal reading what it says here. It's about why. We have the same whys a lot of times. That why is sin. So I want to read a quote because, I mean, I'm not super wise. It's 2023. And so I'm going to go back to a, a, somebody from 300 BC, or 380, sorry. 300 years after Jesus died. And he says this, his name is Basil the Great from Caesarea. Disciples must learn 
the divine takes precedence over the human and that human obligations cannot stand in the way of Christian discipleship. This is as true for these three people as it is for us. A lot of times we put things in front of our relationship with God. A lot of times we put things in front of just being followers of Jesus. We're not putting the precedent on the divine. We're putting the precedent on human obligation. And a lot of times these obligations become what drive us. So as we look at the idea of sin, we ask the question, what is sin? And we think, oh, sin, that's bad things. It's good versus evil. It's really sin is just breaking God's law. And we forget what James says in James 4. He says, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for him, for them. Sin is not just doing bad things. Murder, lust, uh, stealing. Sin is not doing the things that are good, just as much as it's doing bad things. It's about this precedent, where are you putting your focus at? So a lot of this, I didn't even bring the book up with me, but a lot of the things and the thoughts came from a book by Timothy Keller. And Timothy Keller is a book that me and Jeff Fogarty and uh, Carl Rigers have been reading. Uh, and it's called The Reason for God. And this passage is from there, and he was talking about Soren Kierkegaard and his thought of what sin is. And he says, sin is despairing refusal to find yourself, to find your deepest identity in your relationship in service to God. Did I miss the word? Oh, despairing refusal, sorry. Yep, despairing refusal. Sin is seeking to become oneself to get an identity apart from him. When we're focusing on us or showing off for who we are and we lose track of who God is, that's what sin is. Whether it's good or bad, whichever side it is, it's all focusing on ourself over God and letting God drive us. So what does this mean? Everyone gets their identity, their sense of being distinct and valuable from somewhere or something. Human beings were made not only to believe in God in some general way, but to love him supremely, center their lives on him above everything else, and build their identities on him. Anything other than that is sin. So as we think through this picture of sin, it's not always that picture of just evil and bad. I tried to find some, the picture of what is sin was sort of a little bit dark, but I couldn't find a real good picture of sin portraying how we usually think of it as this bad thing. Because a lot of it, it's just like in the picture of the, the girl sitting there with the road, a lot of time, it's just choosing that wrong path. It's we're going the wrong direction. So uh, we had talked about it and we, in our group about the idea of if you're going to California 
and you plan to go through St. Louis. There's like two or three roads you can go to get to California, right? But there's only really one that drive, I mean, 40 and 70 sort of both converge in St. Louis. But really, that path right through downtown is the only one that will leave you by the arch. And so there's lots of good things on either side. What if you want to see the Grand Canyon? What if you want to see this? What if you want to see that? Want to see Dallas go down Highway 10? You're not going the way through God. And so this is where this picture sort of leads us. It's that beginning point where we're going on God's path, letting God be that precedent for our lives. So Simone Weil said this, all sins are attempts to fill voids because we cannot stand the God-shaped hole inside of us. We try stuffing it full of all sorts of things, but only God may fill it. So if you look at that little toy there, the Tupperware toy that probably most of us had when we were growing up, or some sort of that for you younger kids, but you can't put that square or that triangle into the star shape. No, how, no matter how much it looks like it's gonna fit, they both have points, but they are not equal. No matter how much you wanna put that cross-shaped one in the triangle, it's not going to fit. You can try to squeeze it. It's going to bend the pieces out of shape probably, but it's not going to fit. If we don't put God in our God-shaped hole and we fill it with everything else, it's not going to work. We have to let God be there. So does it mean that if you put one of them in, you put the triangle in the triangle hole, that the rest of them don't get, get to go in somewhere. No, they, they still, there's still places for everything else. Our lives need to have one focus. As Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, he said, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will devote to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. A lot of times we try to serve as many masters as we can, but we neglect one of them. Negligence is one of those big things that Americans have as their, at their forefront that we use all the time. Try to do as much as we can, but do very little for anything. And this is what Jesus is saying. You start off by putting the right piece in the right hole, and everything else will fit in there as well. So when Timothy Keller was then talking about C.S. Lewis, he went on to say, sin is not simply doing bad things. It is putting good things in the place of God. So that only solution is not simply to change our behavior, but to reorient and center the entire heart and to center our entire heart and life on God. So it's so important that we take this reorienting. We talk about this idea of repentance, and we think, well, guess what? If you're a believer, you don't need to repent anymore. You repented, you were baptized, you're good. No, no, no. That's not what C.S. Lewis is saying. That's not what any of the other writers are saying. That's not what Jesus is saying. Repentance is a constant process in our lives that we reorient our lives 
to being on that path, putting that right peace in our hearts. So as we think about it, we think about this way. So let me just, um, they had asked me if I was going to use this quote because I said, oh, this is one of my favorite ones in the whole book. And, but the problem is, is it takes a picture from Rocky. And if you've ever watched Rocky, Rocky is this boxer. uh, And at one point, somebody asked Rocky, why are you doing this? And he says, so that I can show that I am not a bum. So this is the quote from the book. Every person must some way justify their existence to stave off the universal fear that they are a bum. In more traditional cultures, the sense of worth and identity comes from fulfilling duties to family and giving service to society. So if you think about history and you think about this exact situation with Jesus' three people, where are the three things? How they look in society, their house. What's going on with their dad, their family? If they're not there, what's everybody going to think about them? They're a bum. They're not taking care of their dad who's dying. And the last one, I want to say goodbye to my family. This is what's going on in this passage. It's the picture of sin that they are choosing something other than God as opposed to choosing God. And so in our contemporary individualistic culture, we tend to look at our achievements, our social status, our talents, our love relationships. There are infinite varieties of identity basis for us. Some get their sense of self from gaining and wielding power. Others from human approval, others from self-discipline and control. But everyone is building their identity on something. What are you choosing? Are you allowing God to be that person that's giving you identity? Or are you choosing one of these other? Whether it be your family, whether it be uh, your work, whether it be just getting approval from people and doing what everybody else wants you to do. So you think about Luke chapter 9. There was an interesting thing that Jesus said a little bit earlier. Verses 23 to 25. Whoever wants to be my disciple, look, Jesus is already telling us the answer. What's the cost? He must deny himself, they must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever will lose their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet lose or forfeit their very self? A lot of times we think that by following Jesus, we will lose who we are. I can't do this. I can't be the family man. I can't be the the worker, the breadwinner, whatever you want to call it. I can't get the degree that I want. I can't do that. I can't do this. It never says that. It says, put your focus where it needs to be and then go forward. 
Let God drive you. And so one of the interesting pictures that he uses from C.S. Lewis is this picture of a grass field and a wheat field. And so you can see them nice and pretty. Oh, by the way, these are from other people, so hopefully I don't get thrown in jail for stealing people's pictures. I give credit to where credit's due, so you can see up there in the top, there's a little whoever's it is. But it's one of those things about grass and wheat. When we look at gra this grass field and we say, if I am a grass field, all the cutting will keep the grass less, but it won't produce wheat. If I want to be a wheat, if I want wheat, I must be plowed up and re-sown. It's a very interesting picture that C.S. Lewis gives because it says, wherever you're planting and whatever you are planted, whether you are grass or you are wheat, you'll grow. If you are a grass field and you need to move out of being a grass field to being a wheat field, change has to happen. This is what Jesus is pushing them on. He, he tells them, hey, you need to focus. I can see in your lives that you are not walking the path that you need to be. You're not the field, whether it be the seeds that are thrown on the road or on the, uh, what is it, the road, the rocky ground, the vines, or the good ground. You're a completely wrong kind of seed. You're putting the wrong seed in that hole. You need to choose the right path. This is where we stand a lot of times. We stand and we're like, oh my goodness, look how good I'm growing. Why is it so green? It's like, oh man, I grew the wrong thing. And there's not a lot you can do. I mean, we all cut our grass every few weeks, but it doesn't change what it is. It's still grass. Could be different kinds. Could be weeds, which is not any better. If we're wanting wheat, we have to change what's growing there. So we get to a few questions, I think, here at the towards the end. And we I want to focus our thoughts on these. So what is it that Jesus is telling or asking you? So in this situation, we see that there's three different people. Each of them get three different answers or three different questions. What is the question that he's asking you this morning? Sometimes it's really quiet. You have to listen. Where is your focus today? What is the plow that needs to be burned? So if you think about Elijah, or Elisha, sorry. Elisha, he knew that if he left that plow sitting there, he left those animals sitting there, he would be, feel that pull to go back. Do we know anybody who felt that pull to go back? Say after Jesus dies, who's out fishing again? Even the 12 struggled with this. Where are they planting? What are they, what is the crop? 
What is the plow in your life today? What field is it that you need to plow under? To move towards where you need to be at, to be on the right path. And it was so interesting this morning as I, I didn't make any song suggestions. Uh, a lot of times they, they ask, and then with all this changing and Jeremy leaving, getting things arranged, you know, Caitlin arranging songs, um, Carrie up here singing them. I didn't even think about handing out a handful of songs saying, hey, you guys should sing all these because these are the best songs that connect into my sermon. And I had it here, somewhere, somewhere in my papers. Never once, Cornerstone, and you are my king. All three of them dwell on this picture of where we need to be focused on. It's interesting, the very last lines of the last song, amazing love, how could that be? That you, my king, would die for me. It is my joy to honor you in all I do. So you'll see the next verses that I threw up there. I figured that we should sort of focus towards the end on Jesus. And I put up there Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. It is, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. This is that goal for us to put our path straight, letting God fill that hole. And the other passage, another song, which if I would have picked a song, this was probably the one I probably would have had for after the sermon. It is Matthew 6, 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, or seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. When we focus on God's kingdom and on his righteousness, things come to us. It doesn't mean you drop everything and say, I have no more family, I have no more friends, I have no more... Uh, career, I have no more school, I have no more anything else, I'm doing Jesus only. Because Jesus wants us involved in everything around us. It's just what your focus is on is where what's different. Everybody has to live for something. Oops, sorry, let me should start at the top of the page as opposed to the bottom. Whatever you base your life on, you have to live up to that. Jesus is the one Lord you can live for, who died for you, who breathed his last for you. Everybody has to live for something and whatever that something is becomes Lord of your life. You hear that? You have to live for something. What are you choosing that to be? Because it's gonna be the Lord of your life. Jesus was very clear about that. One master or the other. If you focus on one, the other disappears. It becomes the master of your life, the Lord of your life. Whether you think it is or not, Jesus is the only Lord who, if you receive him, 
will fulfill you completely. And if you fail him, he will forgive you eternally. This is the picture of those first two songs. He is there for us. He's that cornerstone that is there for us to stand on. He's the one that has put everything on the line. And he says, I will be with you. Never once was I alone. Put your focus on him. Allow him to walk through you to be the hands, the heart, and the head of Jesus. This morning, as we look at this passage, reorient yourself to what it means to be a follower of him. And it's not just anybody, it's everybody. It's all of us every day that need to be focused. Let's work to be more like him.